Well, good morning. Grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to continue. We're going backwards, but we're going to continue in Ephesians, and we're going to be in uh, chapter 1 this morning. So we're going to talk about the work of each person of the Trinity in our salvation. And it seems appropriate, I think, for us to, before we just jump right into that, to back up and make sure we have a strong foundation laid as far as our understanding of the persons of the Trinity and what, that, what, what does that word Trinity mean. So I want to take just a few minutes and just make sure we're all on the same page here as far as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we'll dive into the text. So that's the plan this morning. Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research did a study to find out what Americans in general and evangelicals specifically believe. What do they really believe? They tried to really get into the details of that and answer some important questions. And what they found, especially when it comes to evangelicals, was pretty inconsistent. It was mixed results, let's put it that way. According to the study, 94% of evangelicals agreed with the statement that there is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we hear that, and that sounds pretty good. We're, on, we're off to a good start. However, 78% of the same evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Now, hopefully you hear that and alarm bells start to go off because that is not good and we need to do a little correction there. So let's talk about why this is not true. About 1,700 years ago, there was a man named Arius. He was the bishop of Alexandria and he taught that Jesus was a created being. This became known as the Arian controversy and it was condemned as heresy in the year 325. And one of the things that Arius pointed to was the fact that the Bible frequently refers to Jesus as the firstborn of all creation. And it's certainly in there, right? So we need to deal with that. What does that mean? Does it mean he was a created being? And we would say absolutely not. That's really speaking to Jesus' preeminence over all creation. It's not speaking to the order of all creation. And Jesus happened to be first. John 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. This is, John's using the word, word, but he's talking about Jesus. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So a couple of things to note here that's going to answer this question, why Arius was wrong. First of all, we see in the beginning, and we need to note that once upon a time, there was no such thing as time. Before Genesis 1-1, there wasn't something called a succession of moments. We're bound by that. God is not, and that certainly includes God the Son. And the, the word Jesus was, and he existed And he existed just like God into eternity past. Jesus has no beginning. So God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has no beginning. The triune God always was. 
and all things were, that were made were made through Jesus. He was there before anything that was made was created, and it was made by him and for him and to him and through him. So I don't care if you remember the name Arius or the Arian controversy or the Council of Nicaea or the year 325. I don't care if you remember any of that stuff. The only thing that I want you to take with you today is that you recognize that Jesus always existed. If you hear preaching or teaching or you read anything where someone's sort of talking along the lines of the creation of Jesus, I want your heresy alarms to go off. Take that with you. I don't care about Arius. So if it is true that the Father has no beginning and the Son has no beginning and the Holy Spirit has no beginning, then we can also discard something called modalism. Modalism is another heresy about the Trinity. It's the heresy that God is really not three persons. God is one person, but he just reveals himself to us in three different modes. And if modalism were true, then we would have to say there's no personal relationship between the three persons of the Trinity because there aren't three persons, there's just one. If modalism were true then we would have to say that God did not love anybody before creation. He needed to create someone in order to love. And we know that's not right because not only does God love, but he is love according to 1 John 4, 8. We also need to acknowledge that God is immutable, which is a fancy word for God does not change at all in any way ever. And so if God is love today, then God was love before Genesis 1-1 into eternity past. If modalism were true, then there's no such thing as penal substitutionary atonement. We're going to get into what that is later. But suffice it to say that if we don't have that, then we have a catastrophic gospel problem. So each person of the Trinity is of the same substance and possesses all the attributes of God. And they are in perfect harmony with one another. And this is critical in order for us to understand what we're going to read here in Ephesians today. In other words, there's no such thing as a split vote in the Trinity. There's never been a 2-1 vote. That's not how it works with the Trinity. Listen to this from A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, The persons of the Godhead, being one, have one will. They work always together, and never one smallest act is done by one without the instant acquiescence of the other two. Every act of God is accomplished by the Trinity in unity. So let me just finish our little foundation laying with the Trinity with three things. These are three absolute non-negotiables. We can plant our flag and die on these hills when it comes to the Trinity. Three things. The first thing would be God is three persons. The second thing would be each person is fully God. And the last thing would be that there is one God. God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is one God. If we ever run into teaching or you hear anything or read anything that starts to violate this, the heresy alarm should go off again. So let's look at our text, having laid a, a, a foundation there 
Let's look at what it says. It's Ephesians chapter 1, and it's verses 3 to 14, and it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So in this text, we see each person of the Trinity acting on behalf of the saints in Ephesus, as Paul writes it, but also, let's note, the saints at Logansville. This is for us also. We see that the saints are, number one, chosen by the Father. Chosen by the Father. The saints are, number two, redeemed by the Son. And number three, the saints are sealed by the Spirit. So first of all, the the saints are chosen by the Father. This is going to be in verses 3 through 6. And we should note, first of all, before he even gets into that, Paul starts with worship and praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father. So these truths that he's going to get into are so gloriously earth-shaking that he just can't help himself. His spirit sort of erupts in worship and praise because of what he's going to explain in these verses. So our response to these truths should also be worship and praise when we understand these things. In these first three verses, Paul tells us four things the Father has done for us and to us. The Father has blessed us. The Father has <coughs> excuse me, chosen us. The Father has predestined us, and he adopted us. So let's look at all these together here. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let's remember from last week, we were dead, right? We were helplessly cut off from everything heavenly and pure and beautiful. We were alienated from the glory of God. And Paul tells us that despite all of that, the Father blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So everything that our first father, Adam, turned his back on and rejected, the Father has blessed his people with. 
Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him. So this is one of those critical moments in scripture where we need to guard against the temptation to read something like that and interpret that as what, what that means when it says he chose us in him is really he actually didn't. We chose him. And so as a result of that, then he did something. The text means what it says. He chose us in him. And then he goes on and says before the foundation of the world. So why does he add this? I think he adds this for that problem, the interpretive contortionist problem. The point is, at least in part, that this choice that the father made was entirely independent of any human action or decision. Before he even set the earth in place, let alone before you and I showed up, he chose us in him. John 1 verses 12 and 13 says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then Paul gives us the why. Why did God choose us? It says that we should be holy and blameless before him. So God knew that all of humanity would be ruined. It's ruined in sin. All of humanity becomes children of wrath, but he chose a remnant to set apart. The righteousness of Christ is going to be placed on this remnant within humanity. Look at verse 5. It says, in love he predestined us. So here we have one of those theological words, and to some of you, maybe not so scary, but maybe some here, that's a scary word, predestined. It is in the Bible, however, so let's, let's deal with it. Let's talk about it here for just a minute. The word predestined here is talking about God's election of his people unto salvation. In other words, before creation, God chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's what Paul's telling us. Acts 13.48 says this, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. One more. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul links all this. If you're one of these, you're all of these. So if you're going to be glorified one day, that's because you were justified. If you were justified, it's because you were called. And if you were called, it's because you were predestined. Let's keep going. It says, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So in the garden, Adam is pure and happy And God is his head, and they are in perfect communion with one another. And in a very real sense, Adam is God's son. And then Adam rejects God's headship. He doesn't want to be God's son anymore. He says, essentially, you know what? The serpent is now my head. I'll be his son as opposed to yours. And ever since, all of us, All the descendants of Adam have been in that exact same boat. So before the foundation of the world, God decided that he's going to take some of 
all of humanity that has rejected me and made war on me and has chosen sonship with the devil, I'm going to take a remnant, a a part of that group, and I'm going to bring them back into the family. Not because of them, actually despite them. How does all this happen? Let's look at the text. It says, according to the purpose of his will. We're going to see that phrase several times in our text, that according to wording. Why did the Father bless and choose and predestine and adopt us? In verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So remember from last week, grace and fairness are not the same thing. Those are opposite things in, in, in many ways. They're divorced from one another. We praise the Father for his glorious grace. The Father purposed to save us. The Father chose to make our dead corpses alive again. The Father decided, knowing that we have nothing but wrath for him, we are hostile in mind, we hated him and were at war with him, that he would make us in his family again. You were redeemed by the Son. The Son of God has given us redemption, forgiveness, and an inheritance. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So this word redemption, it's really talking about a ransom paid on our behalf, a ransom paid to free us. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we were enslaved to sin, we were following our father, the devil, but we have been redeemed by the Son. How? Through the blood of the Son. A blood payment was made by the Son, but let's not make a mistake here. It was not paid to sin. It was not paid to the devil. The God who created him does not pay the devil anything. He doesn't owe the devil anything. That's not how this works. The payment was made from the Son to the Father. The Son bled and died in order to satisfy the Father's wrath due to his people. That's called propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Hebrews 9.22 says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So God cannot simply forgive you. That's not how this works. God does not look at you, hostile in mind, a child of wrath, a hater of God, and go, that's all right. A just God would never do that. So that brings us to penal substitutionary atonement. What in the world does that mean? Let's go through each word. Penal, penalty, substitutionary, substitute, atonement. In this context, we're talking about this morning, that's the work Jesus did to earn our salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 
This is talking about the father and the son here. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 says, Surely he, that's the son, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, that's the father, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 10 goes on to say, it pleased the Lord, that's the father, to crush him, that's the son. Why in the world would it say that? Because the sins of his chosen people were imputed to, were placed on the son. And God is just. He will not just forgive you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The gospel is bloody and horrible and terrible and beautiful and glorious and overwhelmed by the love of God. So a bloodless gospel, a gospel with no wrath and no justice is no gospel at all. And a gospel without the overwhelming love of God is no gospel at all. That's something else, but it is not the gospel. Let's keep going. Look at verse 7. We'll continue. It says, According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So there's a mystery that has been revealed to us. We're, we're on the other side of it, so it's not as obvious to us. But there's an answer. How can the wor- God make what's wrong with the world, and oh, by the way, what's wrong with me, right? And the mystery has been revealed to us. God the Father would crush God the Son on the cross to satisfy his justice and redeem his people. Now, we see it looking back. In the Old Testament, they did not see it as clearly as we see it. They knew somebody was coming. Something's going to happen. God's going to fix this. But we can look back and see the Trinity at work in this. How this worked. How what's wrong can be made right. Listen to this from Matthew Henry's commentary. Oh, how ought we to prize this glorious gospel and to bless God for it? This is the light shining in a dark place for which we have reason to be thankful and to which we should take heed. So continuing in verse 9, it says, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So everything at the end of history is going to be reconciled to Jesus. Nothing on earth or in heavens will be left out of balance. He's going to balance all the scales. Perfect justice will be done. For his people, this means four things. First of all, we are in Christ. Colossians 2, 11 and 12 says... In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Second thing this means for his people, Christ is in us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lived, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The third thing, we are like Christ. 1 John 2.6, whoever, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the last thing, we are with Christ. 1 John 1.3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So it's certainly true that there is an inheritance for us, and that inheritance is, first and foremost, Jesus so is our inheritance eternal life? Yes. But first and foremost, our inheritance is Jesus. That's what we get. Hebrews 9.15, it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's another way we might understand this passage, however. And this is what Ligonier Ministry says about this particular verse, verse 11. It says, what, we might, what might be less obvious, however, is that the Bible also says that God receives an inheritance. Certainly the Lord does not receive an inheritance in the same manner as we do, as no one is in a position to grant him anything. Rather, he gives an inheritance to himself. Still, this inheritance that he gains a benefit in some sense. Simply put, God benefits himself when he gives himself an inheritance. Now, I'm going to spare you the, the Greek and the uh, passive and active verses, and they go on to talk about all that, but th the gist of it is this. Another translation of this verse, maybe a better translation, may read that we have been made an inheritance by God for God rather than obtained an inheritance, although that is certainly true also. So does God need us in the sense that we complete him? That's not what they're saying, and that is not what I'm saying. God, Jesus has never walking through the door and looking at you across the living room and saying, you complete me. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm not saying that. He does not need us, but we can glorify him. And this is cool. We can bring the God of the universe joy. We can bring him joy. He's not missing something, but we can bring him joy. Zephaniah 3:17 The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with, a, with loud singing. You can bring the God of the universe joy. You were sealed by the Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is saying here is, okay, something happened. You heard the gospel and believed. And when you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. God put his spirit within you. He removed your heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. And God placed his seal on you. It's as if God himself placed his stamp on you. Mine. This belongs to me. This one's in the family. Verse 14 says that the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of our inheritance. So this is God's down payment on your eternity. This is God's earnest money on your eternity. God's made a pledge to you that he's going to make you his forever. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 21 and 22 says this, And it is God who establishes, who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What's your guarantee that you're going to obtain the inheritance? You were given the Holy Spirit. You were given the Holy Spirit. So let's sum all of this up like this. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, and that means independent of anything we did or didn't do. God the Father chose a people to be his own. He predestined them to be holy and blameless before him. The Father set them aside to be adopted by him according to the purpose of his will. God the Son lived a perfect, sinless life in our place, so on our behalf, in order to earn the inheritance for us. God the Son suffered under the weight of his Father's wrath in order to satisfy God's justice. This exchange imputed the righteousness or placed the righteousness of Christ on God's chosen people and it placed the guilt of those people on God the Son. The gospel is proclaimed to all and those whom the Father predestined, he will call. The Father will draw them to himself and will place his spirit within them so they will respond in faith. The sacrifice of the Son has satisfied the Father's wrath in regard to his people. So they are now justified in his sight according to his will. Those whom the Father predestined are now adopted into his family. They are in Christ and no longer in Adam. The Spirit seals them as belonging to God and the Spirit himself stands as the guarantee of their inheritance. 
Those who were predestined and redeemed and sealed will also be sanctified. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now, did you catch that? A work of God and man. So for the last two weeks, I've sort of been pounding away, right? All you brought was the corpse. You didn't do it. You were helpless and hopeless. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. God did it. But now we're to sanctification. And that is not monergistic, like your justification. It is synergistic. The Holy Spirit partners with you, or you partner with him. And this is something that you are called upon to make effort toward. You are called upon to make war on your sin with the Holy Spirit. So what you're called upon to work toward and make effort toward is not to keep your sin in check or keep your sin under control or keep it in this small part of your life. You are called upon to drag your sin out of the house, out into the street, and shoot it. We are called upon to mortify our sin, to put our sin to death. And sanctification is not optional for Christians. That's not something that some Christians do and others don't. It begins at regeneration and it progresses. It increases and is never fully completed on this side of the grave. So those who are predestined and redeemed and sealed and sanctified will persevere to the end. What about those who fall away? We all know the stories, right? This guy who was in church for 10, 20, 30 years, he led a small group, he taught Sunday school, and then lo and behold, he ran off with the secretary one day. How do we reconcile that with all of this? 1 John 2.19 answers that question. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the one who does not persevere was never predestined, redeemed, and sealed. He just had us fooled. But he did not have God fooled. In the end, God's people will be glorified. They will be fully restored to what they were meant to be, perfected in Christ. So I hope this is good news to you. I hope that when you hear the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do all they have purpose to do according to the counsel of their own will, you respond just like Paul did with worship and praise. Let's pray. Lord, we do bless your name. We praise you for who you are and what you have done for us. Your purposes are perfect. May your will be done to the glory of your great name. Forgive sinners like us. Make us new creations. Protect us against any instinct in our flesh to respond to your will and your ways with that's not fair. Open our eyes to see how glorious you are. In Jesus' name, amen.